We continue in the, the great story of now Abraham. A very famous passage as we have seen. And I wonder if one of the things you have noticed about the story of Abraham is how like our story it is. How God comes to Abraham and gives his great and precious promises. Not once. Not twice. Not three times. But four or more times. He keeps coming and repeating these passages so often that it is common for students in seminary to try and memorize summaries of chapters in the Bible. And Genesis is difficult because chapter 12 is so like chapter 15 and so like chapter 17. But there is a continual unfolding of more and more of God's grace. And isn't this also how the Lord relates to us? He reveals Himself to us in His Son. But that is not the end of our relationship with Him. That the end of our being is not merely getting saved, not merely knowing Jesus, but it is growing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so just like with us, with Abraham, God will come alongside him over and over again to encourage him. And this morning, we look at chapter 17 and the great blessings that come in God's covenant. The first thing that we see is that God reiterates again promises. There are promises from the Lord that come. But the second thing, and a new thing that we see, is not just promises from the Lord, but a sign from the Lord. A sign and a seal here of circumcision. And the third thing we will see is the effect that it has on Abraham and that it revives his faith in the Lord. We have promises, we have a sign. And then we have faith. Let's begin then by looking at the promises from the Lord. Chapter 17 begins right on the heels of chapter 16. And as is happening often in Genesis, I need to remind you of the context. You see, for us, chapter 16 was just seven days ago. We look up and it's just a few words ago. And so as we enter chapter 17, we are prone to think about this in that context and wonder what's going on with Abram, Abraham. Didn't God just meet with him? Didn't God just reiterate the promise to him? And we have to remember here that 13 years have passed. That's a long time. That's the amount of time it takes someone to go through all of secondary schooling. Think about that. From your very first day of kindergarten to heading off to college. That's how long it's been. How big of a change was that in your life? How many things did you need to be reminded of? And so here God comes once again to Abraham and he says to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. So he begins here with a command, actually a set of commands, to Abraham, he asks, he tells him to walk before me and to be blameless. Now, what does this mean? Because you see, if we are Abraham's children by faith, this command applies to us as well. Let's take the more difficult one first. To be blameless. As soon as we hear this command, 
we think there's no way that we can do this. I can't be blameless. I can't be blameless all the time. I'm not blameless this morning. I haven't been blameless since 9 o'clock. I've doubted. I've spoken hard words. I've thought wrong thoughts. How in the world does God expect Abraham to be blameless? And I think we need to understand what this word means. It doesn't mean, Abraham, be perfect. Because if it did, there was no way Abraham could fulfill it. The, the Hebrew word here has a, a more general context. It means to be whole, to be complete, to be single-minded, to be dedicated to God, we might say. It is a single-minded devotion that God wants from Abraham. And that Abraham can do by God's grace. He may stumble and fall, even as we do, but God calls him and us to a single-minded devotion to himself. You might think of it this way. Many of us very recently spent time watching the Olympics in London. And we watched all of these athletes and we heard their stories, whether it was divers trying to have a perfect entry into the pool, whether it was swimmers trying to shave a hundredth of a second off their time, runners struggling against injury and the fastest people on earth, teams seeking to meld themselves together as one cohesive unit. And all of this was for one thing, wasn't it? It was to win the prize. To get the gold. Now what we didn't see, except for perhaps in stories, was all that led up to the Olympics. All of the days waking up at 5 a.m. when you're tired or sick to train. All of the bumps and bruises that are sued the bit in ice baths. All of the money and time and effort that was put into this, a single-minded goal to reach the Olympics and to win the gold. Genesis 17 tells you, Christian, that in Jesus Christ, you must live your life like an Olympian. When you wake up, God must be on your mind. As you make decisions, as you take actions, they should be made and taken in light of the God who is living and sees you. He wants you to be blameless before Him, to walk and to be single-minded single-minded upon him. There's also this context that Abraham is, is told to walk before me, that is, walk before God. What does this mean? Well, this means much more than taking a stroll. Walking is, once again, the biblical metaphor for living one's life. Walk before me, God says. Be loyal to me. Know who I am. And we are again called to this. And the biblical idea of walking is a very practical one. Because obedience to the Lord, a relationship with the Lord, is not a once and for all thing. It is a continual thing. And it is not even something that we could somehow draw up on a piece of paper a perfect set of rules for us to follow. Because let me let you in on a secret. Life changes. Just when you think you've got it all figured together, 
You know exactly where you are. You're a senior in high school. You know exactly what's expected of you. You know exactly how your day's supposed to go. All of a sudden, you're thrown into college and you start all over again. And then, after four long years, you think you've got that figured out. But then you've got to learn a job. And perhaps you've got to learn not just not to be single, but to have a spouse. And that has different responsibilities and different needs. And then... Just when you think you've got this marriage thing down, I think almost in a sense of humor, God sends you children. Because that not only changes because you have to deal with a child, your relationship to your spouse changes. And then you grow older and your children grow and you need to learn to give them responsibility and the way you relate to them changes and how you sin against them changes. You see, the Christian life is one of constant flux and change. And God does not say, do these three things. God says, walk before me to be blameless. So no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, whether today you are six or 66, God is calling you in Jesus Christ to walk before him blamelessly. Now, why would God call upon Abraham to do this? Why would God call upon us to do this? Well, he gives two main reasons here in chapter 17. The first is who he is, and the second is what he has done. You'll notice that this passage begins, I am God Almighty. Now, this is a famous Hebrew word. Many of you know it from the song. It's Shaddai. And because it's famous and because we sing it, we all think we know what it means. And we may look here and say, well, it means almighty, doesn't it? We're not really sure. You see, it has a very expansive meaning, and it's not used very often, but we do know that this name of God is used in circumstances when his servants need assurance. When they need to know that God is the one who provides, that he is powerful and able. Hence the reason it's translated almighty in many of our translations. You see, God has come before Abraham and he is reminding Abraham that he is the author and powerful giver of life. What better time when Abraham is still doubting that he will have a child through Sarah? God says, this is who I am, and because of this, you are to act accordingly. But he also reminds Abraham of what he has done. Look with me again here in chapter 17, at verse 2. He says, I may make my covenant between me and you. And in verse 4 again, behold, my covenant is with you. And again in verse 7, and I will establish my covenant with you. We have seen this before. God has already made a covenant with Abraham. You remember the great visual that we had of the the two rows of the sacrifices and of God passing through in the flaming torch? The covenant has already been made. God is reminding Abraham of what he has already done and that he will continue to do it. That is the spur for your obedience. Make no bones about it, no matter what anyone else tells you. God expects, commands, and demands your obedience 
to his word and his will. But he does so founded on the basis of what he has already done in your life. He does not approach you with a grand bargain. If you do this, then I will do that. No, God approaches you and he says, I have done. Therefore, you are able to do. Do you see the monumental, groundbreaking difference between those two types of statements? Every other religion in the world says, you do and I will do. Let's trade. God says, I will give, I will do, I will enable. And then you will do. Because I have decreed it and empowered it. This is the promise that God gives to Abraham once again. And then he proceeds to make this promise a little bit more real in the changing of Abraham's name from Abram to Abraham. Now you have to understand what names mean in Bible times. Not individual meanings, but people are named certain things because of a characteristic or because of their parents' desire for them to achieve a certain greatness. So, for example, Ishmael is called Ishmael because his mother knew that God hears. And so he's named Ishmael. And so here we have Abram whose name means exalted father. Now, that's, that's a pretty good name, if you ask me. It's better than, you know, dances with wolves or he who runs with the coyotes. But I want you to imagine what life is like for Abram. Every day, day after day. He's living in a land. He's living in tents. And people come to visit him. They come to trade with him. They buy food and sell goods. And just like what perhaps often happens to you when you go to a party or a gathering and you don't have one of these hello, my name is tags on, what's one of the first things that someone's going to say? Well, what's your name? It's Abram. Oh, exalted father. What a wonderful name. How many children do you have? Uh, None. And the Snickers begin. Exalted father? No children. Oh, well, it must be tough to be you, Abram. How many times do you think he heard this? How many weeks? How many months? How many years? And then now we get to a point where his visitors come and, and Abram feels so much better because he can say now the exalted father has one. Oh, you have one child. I would have thought you would have had eight or nine or 15. No, just one. Now imagine how hard it would be to live with this. And God comes to you and he says, Abram, I've got good news. I'm going to change your name. And you can imagine, Abram is on pins and needles here. He is, he is thinking, okay, now God's going to help me. He's going to give me one of great faith or the covenant keeper or something. He'll give me a good name. So Abram speaks with God. Now imagine he goes back into the tent and he's talking with Sarah and the servants are around and he says, I need to tell you something. 
God has changed my name. I will no longer be known as Abram, exalted father. But what will you be known as? Formerly known as Abram, what will you be known as? Well, my name now is Abraham, father of a multitude. And you can just imagine, God has doubled down on Abraham. Now, can, can you imagine that? Every appearance is contrary to this. This name change is a big deal. See, we just look at it and we think, well, Abraham, we're more used to, we're glad we don't have to call him Abram anymore. No. God has made a very big deal about this. No one can call you Abram anymore. You are now Abraham. I am telling you, you have to have this name. And you can just imagine, father of a multitude, I'm 100 years old, and Sarah's 90. How's this going to happen? Why would God do this? Why would God deliberately provoke and put in Abraham's face the impossible nature of this name and this promise? As we'll see in just a bit, it's because this isn't about Abraham. It's about God and what He can do. And so the next thing that God does is, after He gives him this name, He begins then to build up Abraham's faith. He gives him his own little mini-revival. Now you can imagine, Abraham is a hundred years old. Thirteen years have gone by since Ishmael has been born. Years before went by since he has come to the promised land. He's had these promises What's become of them? God says to him that I will give to you a land. Look at verse 8. I will give to you and to your offspring the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. Now once again, this sounds good. But if we don't look at it with the eyes of faith, it's downright depressing. God's giving to Abraham a land? What does Abraham own? Nothing. You'll recall later we will find out that Abraham only gets a burial plot because he buys it from someone else. He doesn't own anything. You may be looking at this and say, well, Abraham doesn't need it, but this was a promise to Israel that they would have the land forever and ever. And then we stop and we think, ooh, but what about the Babylonian exile? The state of Israel doesn't really stretch across all of the Middle East anymore. Does God know what he's doing? Has God forgotten Abraham? Has God forgotten Israel? Are his promises not true? I don't think so. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Romans. Chapter 4. We're going to be back here twice so you can keep your finger in it. God has kept his promise to Abraham and his promise to the generations from Abraham, to those who would descend from him and who descends from Abraham. You, if you are in Christ, he is your father. And Paul says to us in chapter 4, verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of what? The world. It doesn't say Canaan, does it? It doesn't say promised land, does it? It doesn't name a river, does it? No, 
Paul is saying this promise to Abraham is not limited to some small patch of land. It's not limited to some people who lived before Babylon. No, this promise that God gave to Abraham and to all of his descendants, which include all of the faithful in Christ, is that we will inherit the whole world. The next time someone says to you, God doesn't keep his promise because Israel doesn't possess the land, say we possess everything. God doesn't restrict the promise. God blows up and expands the promise. That's how God's promises work. Look at the next promise that is given. It's a promise of a seed, of descendants, back in Genesis chapter 17. He says, I will make you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. And God goes out of his way to describe the greatness of this multitude. In verse 2 he says, I may multiply you greatly. And then again, in verse 6 he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And the way you have these kind of huge promises in Hebrew is you use the word very more than once. I will make you very, very fruitful. I will make you very, very great in your people. This is one of the few places in all of the scripture that this is used. You see, what God is saying to Abraham is, is that he will have a seed that will descend after him. Now again, we can be suspect about the promises of God. What does that mean? The Jews aren't the most populous people in all of the earth. As a matter of fact, in Exodus, God tells them they were the least of the peoples. How will God fulfill this promise? Once again, we must go to the New Testament, to Galatians chapter 3, where Paul, a great student of Genesis, tells us this. In verse 16 of chapter 3, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. You see, the seed of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, are Jesus Christ and all who are in Christ. And this is how God fulfills another of the promises he gives, that Abraham would become the father of many nations. Now, sure, there are going to be nations that descend from Abraham. Edom, Ishmael, Moab, Israel. But that's not what God means here in Genesis 17. What he means is all of the nations that are found in Christ. Go back again to Romans chapter 4. Just after where we read, now at verse 14. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Excuse me. Verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but came through the righteousness of faith. You see, God has given the promise to Abraham that all who believe by faith, all who believe, are a part of these nations. And we see this in Revelation chapter 7. We see the great story of the throne room where from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation are found the people of God, the people of Abraham. 
These are the promises that God gives. But God doesn't stop at the promises. He moves then to a sign. It's a sign of the covenant. Now, we have to understand that the sign of the covenant and the covenant itself are two different things. The covenant is the reality. It is a relationship between God and His people. It is a two-way street. Not in terms of who sets the terms, not in terms of who actions, but there are two parties to this relationship. God, and in this sense now, Abraham. That's why we can look here at verse 4. And God says, Behold, my covenant is with you. This word here for behold actually means, For my part, this is the covenant. And then if we look down to verse 9, we see, As for you, for your part, Abram, you shall keep the covenant in this way. And God begins then to go down through what the covenant means in verses 4 through 6. He says, now notice what the relationship is like with God. It is a two-party relationship. But notice who acts. Verse 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations. I will establish my covenant. I will give to you and your offspring. And I will be their God. Who is the actor? It's God. You see, the relationship is between two, but they're not equals. God sets the parameters. God does the acting here. God sets the duration of the covenant. He says it is an everlasting covenant. But Abraham has his part too. He cannot bargain, but he has responsibilities in the covenant. God says to Abraham, I will do these things, and most importantly, I will be your God. This is the central principle of this covenant, the relationship that God has with Abraham. Now, I think Abraham is a bit like you and me. Have you ever, when you really needed to remember something, have you ever done that trick where you take a piece of string and you tie it on your finger? Or you take a post-it note and you stick it on your computer monitor? Or nowadays you do what? You have your phone being off an alarm to remind you what you're supposed to do? We can be forgetful. And having tangible, physical reminders of things helps, doesn't it? God knows this. And so, within the context of the covenant, God now gives a sign of the covenant to Abraham. He gives him the sign of circumcision. Now, what is circumcision not? Circumcision is not unique in the world at this time. It is not something that is completely unheard of. But it is, generally speaking, in the world, it is a pagan ritual of entering manhood. That's not what it is here. Because when, for all time, is it supposed to be enacted? On the eighth day. No one is going to confuse an eight-year-old boy with a man. So it's not a, a ritual of manhood. It's also not a sign of being Jewish. Some people think that. It is to set the Jewish people apart. Because who are the very first people that are circumcised? Not only Abraham and his family, but 
the text says over and over again, every foreigner who is with you. You may recall in the story of Esther, after Mordecai had done a turnabout his fair play on Haman, Haman had tried to kill all the Jews, and Mordecai and Esther had gotten the king to be on their side. And then everyone was afraid of the Jews, so they did what? They entered into the covenant by being circumcised. So you see, this is not something that is just Jewish. But it's also not something that brings salvation. Circumcision does not save. The sign of the covenant does not save. Because we know that Abraham, when he was circumcised, already had faith. Didn't he? And if we didn't get that from the story, Paul makes that point in 24-point font and highlighter in the New Testament. This sign is not something that saves. Abraham already had faith. He already had the Word of God. What this sign does is confirm the Word of God to Abraham. It's a sign of something that is already true. It is a mark of the covenant community. Everyone knows now who follows Abraham at Abraham's God. Abraham can't forget because wherever Abraham goes, his circumcision is with him. Everywhere he goes, he sees that sign of the covenant. He knows that God has enacted a change. He knows that God has set him apart. You see, that's what signs of the covenant do. And this sign is so closely related to God's covenant that if you look here at verse 10, God calls it His covenant. He says, This is my covenant, which you shall keep, be circumcised. Now this causes us no end of difficulty when we take this and we think about it in the New Testament era. Because what happens is God expands His covenant Not only does he expand the promise of the land, not only does he expand the promise of the nations, he expands his covenant from one people to all peoples, and he changes the sign. He expands it. Now, not just boys, but girls as well. All are to be baptized. All are to be given the sign of the covenant. And there's a problem, because we want to look at this and more closely identify baptism with salvation, then we should. Just like circumcision doesn't save, baptism doesn't save. But the problem is the sign is so closely related to the reality that God wants us to know that it's sometimes confusing. Look with me again back at Romans. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, a passage that has confused many, He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, when we look at this, we are tempted to say, well, baptism must save you. Baptism puts you into Christ. And we do one of two things. We rush around to baptize everybody we can get our hands on to save them. 
Or we say we have to know somehow with x-ray goggles that they're saved before we can allow them to be baptized. But the problem is, Paul is describing the covenant that saves and the Jesus who saves. Because if he thought baptism saved or baptism was that related to salvation, he would never have said in 1 Corinthians 1, I did not come, I was not sent to baptize, but to preach. And I wish I never would have baptized any of you if that stood in the way of my preaching in God's Word. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 3. He says, baptism saves you. And people jump on that. And they don't realize that there's a little bit more to be said. That right after in 1 Peter 3.18, he says, baptism saves you. He says, not the putting away of filth of the flesh. Not the water on the head. Not the water upon the body. No, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Belief and faith in Christ. You see, we must understand that circumcision here, the sign of the covenant, baptism, the sign of the covenant, are very important, but they are not salvation. They are a sign to remind us and encourage us that God is at work. The sign of the covenant is God's, because the covenant is God's. So how does Abraham respond to this? We might think that Abraham would want some reasoning. He would want to to know who should be circumcised and, and what's the proper method of circumcision. And he would ask all of the questions that we would ask. Translate this into our era. Do we sprinkle? Do we pour? Do we immerse? Is it cold water? Running water from a stream. Is it heated water? Is it at the front of the church? Is it at the back of the church? Is the whole family involved? Is just some people involved? We might think Abraham would have a whole bunch of questions because this is a brand new thing. How does Abraham respond? Look with me again at chapter 17. When he had finished, verse 22, when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins. Abraham did something that it seems to me is far too novel in the church today. He heard God and he obeyed him. And lest we think that he hedged his bets, when did he do it? That very same day. Not once we're told, but twice. That very same day. Instant obedience from Abraham. And that kind of obedience only comes from a heart of faith. One that believes the promises, believes in the covenant, and understands that the sign of the covenant is to encourage faith. Do you have that kind of faith? that hears what God has said and obeys it without doubting, without hesitation. This is what God wants from you. Now we understand that we are a frail people and a sinful people. It's the reason why God has to repeat His promises to Abraham over and over and over again. God doesn't expect perfection of us, but He does come alongside us and encourage us and give us aids and promises 
that we might seek after him, that we might obey him and his word. Because you see, all of this, all of this comes down to the central principle of God's covenant and all of life. I will be a God to you and to your descendants. That is how God has chosen to relate to his people. He relates to his people through the work of Jesus Christ. Being their God. God with them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made your covenant with your people. Lord, we ask this morning that you would give us a great glimpse of your steadfastness, your faithfulness, the work that you have done in our lives, that we might seek after you, O Lord. This we ask in the name above all names, the name of the great keeper of the covenant, the name of our God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you.